Let me encourage you to open your Bibles this evening once again to the book of 2 Timothy. In these months of February and March, we've been walking through this second letter from Paul to his protege in gospel ministry, Timothy. And tonight we come to one of the most memorable passages in the letter, it seems to me, and to what must surely have been for Timothy a most moving passage as well in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul has just been urging Timothy to go on preaching in the first verses of this chapter, to preach the word, verse 2, to be ready in season and out of season, to fulfill his ministry, verse 5, to keep up the spread of the gospel, in other words. And one of the reasons for these exhortations, one of the motives for these exhortations in verses 1 through 5, which we will discover in verse 6 tonight, one of the reasons for Paul's exhortations for Timothy to keep preaching, as the old commentator Benjamin Atkinson points out, and as others have as well, one reason why Timothy must not leave off preaching is in order to keep gospel ministry going even when Paul in verse 6 tonight, is no longer alive to do so himself. Paul, you may remember, is in prison in Rome. And Paul is going to die in Rome, probably to be beheaded, as it turns out. And whether or not Paul knows the manner of his execution, he appears fairly certain when we get to verse 6 tonight that his death is imminent. Soon, Paul will preach in this world no more. And thus he's eager in verses 1 through 5 to remind Timothy that in the absence of his own preaching, Timothy's voice must not go silent. Paul's voice will no longer be heard in the pulpit, in the marketplace, on the mission field. And therefore Timothy's voice must be heard. Says Atkinson, when laborers are removed out of the vineyard, it is no time for those to loiter that are left behind But to double their diligence, the fewer hands there are to work, the more industrious these hands must be that are at work. And so Paul says to Timothy in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, be sober in all things, verse 5, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, make us people tonight who love Jesus appearing and who want to finish the course, who want to fight the good fight and keep the faith, who want our lives to be drink offerings to you. Make that so in our lives by what you speak to us in this passage tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are not all like the Apostle Paul. I suspect you're well aware of that, and that 
in any number of categories. None of us would think ourselves as being in the same league with the great apostle. But let me tell you what I mean specifically from this passage tonight when I say that we're not all like the apostle. Part of what I mean is not all of us will know ahead of time, like Paul does here in verse 6, that we are about to die. Some of us, when our time comes to die, will know it for various reasons, but others of us will awaken on a given morning, perhaps with no idea that that morning will be our last morning in this world, and that when we next go to our rest, it will be to our final rest. Some of us, unlike Paul here will die suddenly, unexpectedly perhaps, without having the time on a deathbed to weigh things up as the apostle does here, to make glorious final statements of our faith or to give sober final instructions to our fellow saints like Paul does, which should cause us perhaps not to wait before we do those kinds of things. So that's one way that we're not all going to be like Paul. Not every Christian knows the day or even the season of his or her death. But then some of our deaths will also be somewhat different from the apostles in that even if we do know that we are dying, not all of us may cross over the last river with such triumph as Paul appears to do here in the final chapter of 2 Timothy. John Bunyan painted it well in his Pilgrim's Progress when he showed his readers that not all pilgrims get over the final river of death so smoothly as others. For some, the tide is fairly low, and we go across the river of death untroubled and confident, something like we find Paul here in verses 6 through 8. But other Christians, like Bunyan's Christian feel as they cross that final river of death, perhaps like they are about to drown and maybe never actually will make it across to the celestial city. Some of us have doubts, as we said on Sunday, and some of us will have them perhaps even in the moments of death, though that does not mean that we don't believe or belong to the Lord. And then there are other Christians who perhaps though they have no doubt when standing on the riverbanks of death that they will make it safely across and that they will awaken with Christ, yet perhaps they're not as triumphant as Paul is here when they think about how well they ran the race to that point. Paul is confident in the way he's run the race, but not everybody can speak this way. Not everybody, either by temperament or sometimes by actual living, can talk like Paul when they get to the end of the Christian life. Some of us might die, for instance, repeating not the triumphant words of Paul here in verses 6, 7, and 8, but rather the words of the tax collector in Jesus' parable, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I think either reaction in death can be a reaction of faith. One person, like Paul, focused on God's grace in the journey. Another person focused on God's grace over against our sin. And so there are some significant ways as we consider how Paul came to die. There are some significant ways in which we might not all die in exactly the manner he did or speak with the same triumph that he does here. And yet I think that there are ways, even more significant ways, in which we will die like Paul, 
or at least in which we can and should finish like Paul does here. And so notice now some similarities or some potential similarities at least between your impending death and mine and that of the Apostle Paul. One similarity, and this is not even a potential similarity, it's a definite one if Jesus tarries, is that we are all at some point like the Apostle going to depart this world. That's one thing that we should take away from verse 6 tonight. We are all going to depart. You might not know when, but unless Jesus returns in your lifetime, your own departure through death will come. And it is well if you should live with that reality, not tucked away in the back of your mind, but somewhere near the front. Because if you remember that you really are going to die like Paul, perhaps you will be motivated all the more to live like Paul for Christ's glory. You will depart this life. That's one similarity between yourself and myself and Paul. And then another similarity, or something that could be a similarity, really something that should be a similarity, is that hopefully, just as in this passage, hopefully when our voices finally lie still like Paul's is about to do, hopefully others will be compelled, like Timothy here, to go on ministering the gospel so as not to leave a gap where we once were. In other words, I hope it's the case in your home, in your workplace, in your extended family, in your sphere of influence, that like Paul, you so proclaim the news of Jesus that when you are gone, other Christians like Timothy here will be compelled to take up that same mantle lest there be a gap for the gospel where you once were. And then thirdly, A third similarity, and this one, again, is a potential one, something that ought to be similar between us and Paul. The third similarity, hopefully, is that whether or not we can speak like Paul in verses 6 through 8, whether or not we are as personally triumphant in verses 6 through 8 as Paul is about our faith fighting and our race running, whether we feel like Paul in the face of death, I hope it will be true whether we can say it confidently or not that all of us actually will, in the end, have fought the good fight and finished the course and kept the faith and obtained the crown. Not all Christians, we said, will die with equal senses of their triumph in the Lord. But many as a Christian, I am sure, who died more aware of their sins than they were of their saintliness, and yet who did finish well. They may not have felt like Paul, they may not have felt triumphant, but their dying days were actually a drink offering, even if they wouldn't have thought of it that way or spoken of it that way. They actually did fight the good fight, finish the course, and keep the faith. And whether or not they have a great sense of those things, whether or not they can testify to those kinds of things when they come to die, may it be the fruit of this sermon that some of us, many of us, hopefully all of us, will have actually done those things while we live, and that we will also die well, whether we have a full sense of how well we're dying or not. And to that end, that we live well and that we die well, I want us to have a closer look at this passage now in three parts. Very simply, Paul's departure in verse 6, Paul's perseverance in verse 7, and Paul's crown in verse 8. So first of all, Paul's departure 
in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, we've already spoken about the circumstances of Paul's departure. He is soon to be executed in Rome. And of course, though we've not said it tonight, the reason for that execution is not that Paul is a criminal, not that he's broken any just law, but that the world hates Jesus. And Paul is a preacher of Jesus, plain and simple. That's why he's in trouble. And because Paul is a preacher of Christ and simply just a follower of Christ, he has suffered for the sake of the gospel, and he is suffering right now for the sake of the gospel as he writes these words to Timothy, and he will, in his death, suffer for the sake of the gospel. May we have the courage to do the same. And whether we die for the gospel or not, as we said already, we are going to die each one of us, if Jesus tarries. And tonight I want you to notice a couple of things about Paul's death and about his description of that death that I hope you will take up and make your own. So we're thinking about Paul's departure, noticing a couple of things about it. And the first is simply to notice the word that Paul uses to describe his death is departure. He doesn't simply call it death, William Hendrickson points out, And he doesn't refer to it as his end, but rather Paul speaks of his impending death as a departure. And departure is an interesting word, isn't it? A departure doesn't signify an end, but simply a transition from one place to another. A departure, yes, does end someone's sojourn in a particular place, but it doesn't end that person's sojourn, period. A departure can hit the pause button on certain relationships or certain aspects of those relationships by putting great distance between the two parties, one who has departed and the other who has remained. But departure doesn't have to mean the end of those fellowships forever. There can be a returning or a reunion or a catching up with one another. And so I say that it's significant that Paul speaks here not of an end, not even just of a death, but simply of a departure. That's why we sometimes speak of Christians not as dead, but simply as gone home. A good bit of my mother's side of our family is buried in a little pioneer cemetery in Oklahoma, somewhat reminiscent to me of those uh, of that cemetery out east here in Bethel that I mentioned a few Sundays ago, only this cemetery is younger because it's in Oklahoma and not Ohio. And I have some distinct memories from various trips to that cemetery in central Oklahoma, and one of them is of a headstone, presumably of a man who had been a truck driver, into which headstone was carved the image of an 18-wheeler with the inscription, just on another trip, just on another trip. Now, I realize that some of these kinds of things are pie in the sky. A lot of people in our culture talk about people being in a better place or someone having gone on home, even when there seems to be little understanding of the gospel and little affection for Christ. I know we just use those terms, and so I'm not always keen on quaint expressions like the one on that tombstone, frankly, just on another trip. But... Whether that truck driver and his family that commissioned the headstone really knew and loved the gospel or not, 
the reality is that that sentiment on that headstone is right if we know Christ. If a person has died in the Lord, their life has not ended. They have merely gone on a trip. They have merely departed, to use Paul's language here. And so here's Paul, who knows a thing or two about departure, right? What with all his comings and goings from one place to another on his various missionary trips. And now, at the end of his life, he's simply going on another trip. He is now departing from Timothy once again, not wholly unlike the two had parted when Paul was run out of the town of Berea in Acts 17. They were separated then for a season, but not forever. And now Paul is going on another trip, and Timothy will be separated from him again, this time at a much greater distance. But like Timothy had done in the city of Corinth before, Timothy will eventually catch up with Paul once more in this port of call in heaven as well. And this is the way of things, you see, in every Christian life and in every Christian death. Death for the Christian is not ultimately death. It's not an end. It is simply a departure, just a temporary farewell, the hardest of all farewells to be sure, but still only a farewell between two believers in Christ, still only just a departure if we belong to Jesus. And I hope you pick this up from Paul tonight and are able to assimilate this truth as you think about the departures that we all must face. Just as Timothy and Silas as well, after Paul's departure from Berea, eventually caught up with him in Corinth, so we will all catch up with one another again someday in the great arrival terminal of glory. His death, Paul says, is a departure and not an end. But then I also want you to notice still under this heading of Paul's departure in verse 6, the second thing I want you to notice is not only does Paul refer to his death as a departure, but also as a drink offering. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What does he mean by that? Well, the idea of a drink offering comes from the Old Testament where along with the other sacrifices of sheep and goats and so on, God often commanded the Israelites to pour out with these other offerings a drink offering as well, a quantity of wine poured out, something like Mary's perfume, if you can picture it, poured out to God as part of this larger set of offerings that were being made all together. And both Hendrickson, William Hendrickson and John MacArthur, both of them point out that the drink offering was the last offering in the set. It was the last offering in a specific sacrificial act of worship, the final part of a given set of offerings. And these two commentators point out also, this is what Paul is saying about his life now. He is now in his final suffering and death, pouring out his last offering to God in this world. Paul it was, you remember, who taught us in Romans 12 to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And he has done that, as we're reminded using different metaphors in verse 7. Paul has offered himself up faithfully as a sacrifice to God over all of his years of service. But now he realizes, just as with the Old Testament sacrifices, now Paul realizes realizes that the giving of the offerings in his life 
is almost complete. And there's just one last offering left. All that is left to complete his earthly worship, to finish his offering well, is the drink offering. And the drink offering is his own dying. And his own dying well. And I want to urge you to think in those terms yourself. I want you to think of your death not simply as a last, most difficult hassle that you have to endure like a turbulent plane ride in order to reach your final destination, but rather to think of your death as the last part of your Romans 12 sacrifice, the last act in your presenting your body as a sacrifice to the Lord. Think of your death as a way to honor the Lord and to worship the Lord by means of you dying well. Make it a drink offering. Think of the last years of your life and even the last days of your life, not merely as an ebbing away, but as an opportunity for pouring out your life to the Lord. And I urge you, I plead with you, not to spend your last years and days like so many Americans just playing, completing frivolous bucket lists, rather than pouring yourself out all the way to the end as a living and eventually as a dying sacrifice to the Lord. So that is verse 6, Paul's departure. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But now let's think in the second place about Paul's perseverance in verse 7. Paul's perseverance. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. One reason Paul could speak confidently of his death as his final offering to the Lord in verse 6 is because, as he says here in verse 7, he had lived his Christian life for all those years as an offering continually to the Lord. And not just in his missionary endeavors, but simply as a Christian keeping the faith Paul had given his life to the Lord. Because you'll notice in verse 7, Paul does not say, I have traversed the world, I have preached to great crowds, I have planted churches. When he recalls his life, when he recalls the offering of his life, he speaks at the very end much more simply, not about his missionary endeavors, not about his preaching endeavors, but he speaks in verse 7 much more simply about doing the things that we must all do as Christians, keeping the faith. Finishing the course, fighting the good fight. In other words, Paul is not dying as a missionary, first of all. Paul is dying as a Christian. And when he looks in the mirror, the rearview mirror here in verse 7, and he sees what has, is behind him on his journey, and he thinks about the way he lived, he sees himself, again, not as a preacher, but as a Christian, keeping the faith. And the characteristic that he sees when he looks out the rear windshield, the characteristic that he sees in his life, praise be to God, is that of perseverance. Perseverance. He says it in three different sorts of ways here in verse 7, twice in metaphorical language and once in plain language. But in essence, I think he's talking about the same or similar characteristics in all three clauses, namely perseverance. Most straightforwardly, he says at the end of verse 7, I have kept the faith. I have not gone off into heresy. I have not given way to skepticism and doubts. I have not given myself over to unrepentant sin. I have not traded Christ 
for temporal expediency, I've kept the faith. I'm still trusting Christ. I'm still believing the word of God. I'm still trying to walk holy. I'm still repenting when I don't. I'm still banking on the blood of Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm still sowing the seeds of the gospel. I'm still praying. I'm still contributing to Christ's church all the way to the end. All of this is what it means to keep the faith. Just to keep actually really being a Christian. And I urge you to do it, just like Paul. Keep the faith. You keep trusting Jesus. You keep taking God at his word. You keep trying to walk holy. You keep repenting when you fall. You keep trusting and hoping only in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You keep ministering the gospel. You keep praying. You keep contributing to Christ's church all the way to the end. Paul was no longer serving as a missionary now in this point of his life, or at least not in the way that he'd done before. He's no longer out traveling and preaching. And you will get to a place in your life, perhaps, where you are not able to serve the Lord in the last days of your life in just the same way that you may be serving him now, but you can still hope in him. And you can still seek him, and you can still trust him all the way until you see him. And then you'll do these things all the more. I've kept the faith, Paul says, and we must keep the faith as well, all the way to the end. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, says the author of Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And speaking of running the race that is set before us, that's one of the metaphors that Paul uses here, still in verse 7, when he says, I have finished the course. I have finished the course. Now, back in chapter 2, Paul talked about running the race according to the rules, chapter 2, verse 5, which is to say that when we run this Christian race, we must run it straight. We must not veer off the course. We must not try and cut corners and so on. We must run according to God's laws for our lives. But now we're told also in the example of Paul that we must run to the end. We must not only compete according to the rules, but we must finish the course. We must not allow anything, whether doubts or sin habits or laziness or just good old-fashioned American addiction to leisure, we must not allow any of these things to cause us to sit down in the middle of the race course and just stop running this race called Christianity. You don't get a prize for starting the race. You get the prize, you get the crown in verse 8 when the race is complete, when you have finished the course. And so you must keep going, my friends. You must not be deterred by anything that threatens to take you off the track. You must not stop running in the middle. If you find yourself off the track, you must get back on it and you must finish the course. We, know, we all know people who have gone off the course, don't we? People who started out running with us and who fell away. They stopped running or they got off track and started running a different direction. And we know people like that who haven't come back yet. And we know people like that who died and never came back. And there are theological ways that we're not going to go into tonight by which we come to understand how that reality can fit 
with the biblical truth that those who are truly born of God will, in fact, endure to the end. But the big thing in terms of application for us tonight is that if we say we belong to Jesus, if we say we've been born of the Spirit, let's keep running. Let's not get sidetracked and find ourselves one day completely out of the race. Let's seek God's help daily so as to be able to say someday with Paul, I have finished the course. And let's seek God daily so that we'll be able to say with Paul as well, also here in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. Now remember, these metaphors about finishing the course and fighting the good fight are describing in, in, in bigger terms this simple characteristic of perseverance, keeping the faith. And so what this metaphor about fighting the good fight tells us is that keeping the faith is sometimes a fight. That's not just a metaphor, actually. It's a real fight, spiritually. If you're going to keep the faith, if you're going to finish the course, you are going to find yourself in need sometimes of fighting off your own sin, fighting off your own inner crookedness, fighting off your own inner bent to run crooked or to give in to various lusts and go off to the side of the track or to choose sin over God. It's not to say that you'll ever fend these things off perfectly in this life, but a sign that you really belong to Christ is that you're engaged in the fight, that you don't want to keep doing these things that necessitated the Son of God being crucified for you. You know that they're all covered by his blood, past, present, and future sins. All of them covered by his blood if you're in Christ. But the price at which they had to be covered and the love of God in paying that price and the beauty of Christ's own holiness and the beauty of the law of God to which our eyes as a Christian have been opened, all of these things come together in our lives when we're truly born again when we truly belong to Christ to make us want to fight off these sins rather than continue in them so that a Christian is someone who is engaged in a fight not against other people with whom now in Christ we find more reason than ever before to be at peace but a Christian is engaged in a fight with his own soul within his own soul and against his own sinfulness and as Christians we're also at war against the rulers, Ephesians 6.12, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, we are in a fight against the devil and his angels, against their schemes or their wiles, as the King James puts it, against the devil's flaming arrows. These things come to us in the form of temptations to sin, as with Jesus in the wilderness. They come to us, these flaming arrows, in the form of demonic oppression, perhaps, as with Mary Magdalene and others. They come to us in the form, sometimes, perhaps, of physical attacks, as with Job, or in the form of doubts that Satan tries to slip in our minds, as with Eve, in the form of pagan idolatry, which is simply demons masquerading as gods, and so on. The devil is constantly shooting arrows at God's people. And we fight against these things by means of prayer, by means sometimes of fasting, by means of proclamation 
of truth which sets men free indeed from doubts and idols and lies and so on. We fight against these things by means of the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, which is another passage that reminds us that we're in a fight. And we want to come to the end of our lives not necessarily saying that we were great warriors or that we won every battle or that we never got knocked down. Indeed, I doubt we will come to the end of our lives, any of us, without having to confess sometimes that we set our weapons down and watched or that we just gave in for a season. But though we will not come to the end of life saying that we fought a flawless fight, saying that we were great champions, we do want to come to the end of our lives able to say that we fought the good fight, that we actually took up the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and got into the fray and struck some blows on the side of truth. We want to be able to say with Paul that we fought, that we stayed in the battle, that we didn't tuck tail and run, that we didn't desert to the enemy, that we didn't just lie down and let him have his way with us. So this is... Paul's perseverance in verse 7, and may it be ours as well. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And then in the last place tonight, let's notice not only Paul's departure and Paul's perseverance, but also Paul's crown in verse 8. Paul's crown. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord... The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's crown, and I want you to notice three things about his crown, and then we're finished. First, notice that it is a crown of reward. It's a crown of reward. I believe the context where Paul uses this athletic metaphor in verse 7 of running a race demonstrates that the crown at the end of the race is a crown of reward. Paul is running for an award, verse 8, for a prize, chapter 2, verse 5, for the sort of crown that would be awarded to the victors in the ancient games at the end of a race. Paul is not talking about a participation t-shirt that you get for simply entering the race. He's talking about something that will be rewarded at the end of the race, in the future, he says here in this verse. And it will be awarded like the prize that he talks about back in chapter 2, verse 5, because he ran well. Because he ran according to the rules, according to chapter 2, verse 5. And here, verse 8, because he, or verse 7, because he ran all the way to the end. So Paul is speaking about a reward here. The crown is a reward that one gets when one runs the race well. Now, it's true, of course, that at the root level, we don't, any of us, deserve any sort of reward from God. Ultimately, every blessing that we enjoy, both now and in glory, is a gift of God's grace, not a prize that we have earned. And the crown of righteousness, here in verse 8, fits snugly into that category. Our righteousness, both as it is imputed in justification and as it is worked out in sanctification, and as it is completed in glorification, our righteousness and the crown named after it here in verse 8 are of God. So we don't ultimately deserve any crowns. We know that, which is perhaps why we find the elders in Revelation 4 casting their crowns before the throne of God and saying, worthy are you. And yet, 
under this all-encompassing umbrella of God's grace, where we know that all that we accomplish is of his grace, and apart from him, we can do nothing. Under that umbrella of grace, God does look down upon our obedience, upon our perseverance in the faith, upon our fighting the fight and running the race and keeping the faith and our longing for Christ's coming here in verse 8. God does look down on all these efforts to honor him, and though we couldn't have done any of them with Without him, yet God does reward our faithfulness in these things. There is a prize, chapter 2, verse 5, for those who run according to the rules. It's a grace prize, yes, but it's a prize nonetheless, chapter 2, verse 5. And it's the same root word here in chapter 4, verse 8, when Paul speaks of the crown that is laid up for him to be awarded by God when Paul finally crosses the finish line of the Christian race. And I wonder if you are running for that crown so that you might have something yourself to cast at Jesus' feet in the heavenly glory. Are you content like the foolish builders in 1 Corinthians 3 to be saved from the flames of hell by the skin of your teeth, as it were? Or are you running 1 Corinthians 9 in such a way that you may win? This is a crown of reward, first of all. But then notice also that it is not an exclusive crown. Not an exclusive crown. Paul does not say, does he, that he will have this crown waiting for him in verse 8 because he saw X number of people come to Christ under his preaching or because he traveled X number of miles in the service of the gospel or because he preached such wonderful sermons or because he gave up such certain comforts in order to go be a missionary. Paul doesn't say any of that. He expects the crown in verse 8, not because he was a missionary and a great one at that, but because, verse 7, he was simply a persevering Christian. He expects the crown not because of great successes, but because he fought the good fight and because he finished the course and because he kept the faith. And any Christian can do those things, can we not? All of us are indwelt by the Spirit if we really belong to Christ, and therefore all of us can run in such a way that we may win. Because Paul's winning isn't connected so much with his gifts or with his particular calling here or with his ministry successes. His winning, the crown in verse 8, is connected with his faithfulness and his endurance in verse 7. His winning the crown is not called a crown of success, a crown of missionary endeavor and achievement. It's called a crown of righteousness. He wins the crown because he walks with God and he keeps the faith and he's righteous. And I say that we can all do and be these things, whether we are the greatest missionary or the most ordinary pastor or the most normal Christian in the pew living their lives for Jesus Monday through Saturday and worshiping together on the Lord's day. This is not an exclusive crown for Paul or those like him. And just to nail that into place, that the crown Paul speaks of here is not just for the greatest of Christian achievers. Notice how he says here in verse 8 that the crown is not just for himself, but for all who have loved Christ's appearing. 
In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And that's a great sentence. It would be wonderful if Paul said that, and even if that's all he said, but that's not all he says, is it? In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And what that means, very simply, is that if you are the kind of person who has loved Christ's appearing, if you are the kind of person, in other words, who is eager for Jesus to come again, who just longs to see your Savior, then there's a crown of reward for you, too. And so it's not an exclusive crown. We may all have something beautiful to cast at Jesus' feet someday if we have loved his appearing, which will motivate us to fight the good fight and finish the course and keep the faith and walk in righteousness. These verses can be your verses. I have fought the faith, fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's not an exclusive crown this crown of reward. And then notice finally regarding this crown that it is a future crown. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is a reminder that Paul doesn't have his crown yet. Paul isn't experiencing the reward now. Right now, Paul is in prison, right? Not right now now, of course, but right now in this passage. Paul is in prison. His reward, as we read verse 8, is still yet future. And this is the way the Christian reward works, isn't it? Sometimes it's true God rewards our faithfulness even right here in this life. Indeed, many times he does that, but not always and not fully in this life. The great rewards we will reap in glory, in heaven, in the new earth, in the future. And so we must live with that perspective. And once again, we must keep running the race. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, now Myanmar, described his slow and difficult gospel work like this. In spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain, we reap on Zion's hill. And that's how it often is, isn't it? We sow on the plains of this world, but we don't reap the full reward until we reach Zion's hill. We see some reward, we see some fruit, Uh, often we see much fruit, but there is great reward. There is a crown of righteousness when we arrive in heaven. We sow here, but we do not fully reap here. We run here But the great prize is yet to come. When you enter a marathon, you don't get your medal at the 13.1 mile mark. Nor even do you get it at the 26.1 mile mark. You get your medal when you have crossed the tape. And that should keep you going so as to finish the course. And that's what we need to do, is it not? We need to finish the course. We need 
when we're young, not to be distracted and off course about all sorts of things that are attractive to us in the world. When we are middle-aged, we need to not sit down midway through because we've done all these things and where has it gotten us? When we are old, we don't need to grow weary and tired and give up in the last few miles of the race, but run all the way through the tape, fixing our eyes on Jesus. When you run like that, verse 6, even the last days of your life will be an offering to the Lord. When you run like that, verse 7, you will keep the faith and you will finish the course. When you run like that, you will find at the end that there is laid up for you the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award you on that day. You may not as you approach the river of death, I hope you do, but you may not have a sense of triumph. You may not feel triumphant or speak triumphantly like the apostle does in this passage. You may, when you come to the river of death, feel more like a plotter who is just happy that he made it to the end of the race than you do like someone who's about to be awarded the gold medal. But if you finish the course, you are a victor indeed. So finish it. Pour out your life as a drink offering all the way to the end. Fight the good fight. Finish the course. Just keep going with Jesus. Keep the faith. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep taking God at his word. Keep trying to walk holy. Keep repenting when you fall. Keep banking on the blood of Jesus Christ as the only hope for your forgiveness. Keep ministering the gospel to others. Keep praying. Keep contributing to Christ's church all the way To the end, in the words of the author of Hebrews, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Father, help us to do this. We all know the proneness of our own hearts to want to just sit down sometimes. We all know people who have sat down and haven't gotten back up. We've known people who've gone gone off the course and over the edge of a cliff, never to be seen again. So warn us, but more than that, woo us toward the crown of righteousness and toward the appearing of our Lord Jesus, whom we will see when we cross the tape. And we ask in his name. Amen.